Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. So this morning, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. And as you're turning there this morning, let me just catch you up to steam as to where we've been We started chapter 4 with uh, Paul begging us to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. We've already studied those first three chapters, the doctrine of of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a church, the doctrine that that is so important in our lives to help us understand who we are in Christ. And that's exactly the point he gets to in those first three chapters, telling us that we are in Christ. And And we see Paul at the very beginning of that first verse there, chapter 4, if we've been studying the last couple of weeks, calling us to understand that doctrine, but understand it in such a way that it becomes a duty in our life. And that's where we're at this morning as we approach his word. So if you would be so kind as to stand with me in the reading, in the honor of the reading of God's word as we read those first few verses, and we see what God has to say to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And it says this in verse number 1 of chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, enduring to keep the, or endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as we were called with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and is in you all. Father, this morning we have read your word. We have spent time fellowshipping together. We have spent time singing praises to your name. We have spent time listening to you proclaim through music and through the teaching in Sunday school and through our time together already this morning. And now I just ask this of you. That you so solely focus our attention upon you that nothing else in the world exists. That you help us to see you in a special way this morning. May you do this by making very little of me and very much of yourself. Let your word come alive in our hearts so that we may honor you with our lives. This we pray in the name of your precious Son and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So Paul has in those first three chapters given us that doctrine and as we started off in the last couple of weeks talking about the walk we saw where he was reminding us of how he was and how we should be laid hold of by Jesus Christ we talked about that laying hold of last week and I don't know if you caught the service last week if you understood what happened in the service last week but it was a great movement of God as he brought to your attention the fact that Jesus had laid hold of your heart. There's many people last week that came and and did diligence with God as to what was going on in their life, and they humbly stepped out of a pew and came forward and bowed at the feet of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and asked for forgiveness of their sins and asked for their lives to be different, repented of things in their life, and that's exactly what Paul has been trying to bring to our attention in those first three chapters of Ephesians the need in our life for this worthy walk. And this worthy walk comes out of understanding who you are in Christ. And it's so important to Paul that we saw there in that very first verse where it says he beseeched you. It's it's actually begging. Can you see this Paul that has stood up to so many beatings and so many 
times that he's been locked up and so many things that he's endured in his life. And here he is on his knees begging us, begging us to pay attention to who Christ is and who we are in this Christ. And he ends that very first verse in telling us that we have this worthy calling That this calling isn't something to be shunned, that it's a worthy calling from a worthy God. See, each of those who believe were given that faith to believe by God, he told us in the first couple of chapters. The object of our belief, he told us in that first two or three chapters of Ephesians, was to be Jesus Christ. That was to be our object. And he says that if then we are in Christ, because he is our object, that we should walk that way. That doctrine that he's taught us should now become a duty or, or something that's evident in our life. In fact, if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, it should be evident in our walk daily. And that's the point that Paul's getting. That's where Paul's heading. That it's not a Sunday religion. That it's not a Wednesday evening religion. It's not a bow your head and pray over your food religion. It's life. What Paul is saying is if you've been laid hold of by Christ, you're now in him. And it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year and it's 366 as it is this year. There is no retirement from walking in Christ. There is no vacation from walking in Christ. There is no time out to veg on the couch. If you are in Christ, you're fully in Christ. And that's why it's so important to Paul that he begs us about that. Now he moves on in these next two verses, verse 2 and 3 of Ephesians 4. And Paul gives us this progression of this worthy walk, this progression. He actually gives us five characteristics in these two verses that should make up our worthy walk. He He says there in the second verse that it should be this walk of lowliness. Number one, he says it should be gentleness. It should be long-suffering. It should be bearing with one another in love. And it should be endeavoring to keep the unity. It's a progression from lowliness to unity. What was Paul teaching in the third chapter of Ephesians? Unity in the body. He gave the doctrine of this unification. And now he's going to take it from this doctrine stage to this duty stage where your walk should point towards unity. Unity. This morning we're going to try to look at the very first characteristics. I have a first characteristic. I have absolutely zero hope that we will get through that this morning. So you'll have to come back next week for the rest of the message. I'll tell you that up front. So I'm at liberty now to go as far as I can go and we'll stop when the time runs out. How about that? This morning, let's look at that very first characteristic where Paul says in verse 2, Paul tells us to walk with all lowliness. The word that's used there for all is that same word that was used when we were told in John 3, 16, that Jesus sent his only begotten son to die for all. It's that same thought, this all, this completely inclusive that is nothing outside of the realm of this lowly walk. That everything we do, everything we think, everything that we are should be included in this cloud, this word, this thought process of lowliness. 
Now, what does that word mean to us? There's, it's a great big Greek word that's there. There's actually two words put together, so it's a compound word. I'm just going to give you the English because I couldn't pronounce the Greek if I wanted to on this one. The, the Greek word that's used for lowliness there, this compound word, really means humiliation of mind. Now, is that the picture you had of lowliness whenever you hear the word lowliness? It's humiliation of mind. What do we use? What English word do we use for that? Humility or humbleness. Or being humble. And what Paul is saying here is Paul is saying with all humbleness you should walk. There's a problem with that in our world today. And there was a problem with that back in Paul's day and time. I found it very interesting as I was trying to find this word and where this particular word was used in other places outside of, of scripture as well as within scripture. I found that this word was very vague. <laughs> Back in the Roman and Greek times. As a matter of fact, it was so vague in the Roman times and the Greek times as far as their vocabulary, it didn't even exist. The word existed nowhere outside of the Bible. find that very interesting. You really don't hear that word used much outside of church in our world either, do you? Because what do you think about when you think about a person that's being humble? What do you think about when you say humility see most of the time we hear the word humility and what really comes to our mind is humiliation not humility we think of a person being humiliated more than we do of a person being humble or walking in an attitude of humility you see to be called humble in our day and time really is is a derogatory statement well guess what in the time that paul wrote this it was also a derogatory statement. Even though the Christians had coined this word, this word being humble, the Romans, the Greeks, even some Christians had started using the term to speak down about people. Instead of being a lowliness of mind, they started making a lowliness of person, which is what we do. We talk about a poor, humble person, and what do you think? A guy in rags sitting on the corner because he doesn't have a place to live or a job or any money. We think about humbleness being this outward symbol of a person's lack. It's what we think of humbleness as. You see, it's not really something that we desire. Even today, humility is really humiliation in our mind. We think of a humble person really being this meek and mild individual, don't we? We think of a humble person being this person that doesn't have much uh, get up and go. We think of this person that doesn't think much of themselves. I remember this term mom and dad used to use. I have no idea where it came from, but Casper Milk Toast. Does anybody know where that word came? Casper Milk Toast. But it's this picture that we get in our mind of this person that thinks so little of themselves that they shrink back in a corner they don't want to be in the forefront of anything they want to be behind the scenes all the time they want nobody to know they're there because they're just humble (laughs) just want to be over here and be humble i find it interesting that we think of it that way in fact in today's world we don't teach people to be humble what do we teach them to be prideful The exact opposite of being humble. In school, we start off very young teaching people to be proud of what they do. I find it interesting. I was thinking about it as I was 
talking to the kids. Whenever I said, how do you reckon I got this trophy? And they said, by winning. Well, I just happened to look down at it, and it was. It was from 1978. Um, I was about a year old, I think, maybe. Okay, okay, maybe not. I must have been, uh, help me out, honey, I must have been like 12 or something. When 12 years old, my wife just nodded to it. Yeah, that's right, I'll be 50 this year, half a hundred. Half a hundred. Um, I like to look at it as half a hundred instead of 50, if you don't mind. But anyhow, 1978, it just says Parker's Dash, 1978, my name, Roger Barnes. What do you think I did to get that trophy? Any idea? Just by what I just read to you? What did I do to get that trophy? I paid for a hat and a shirt, and I showed up every game. Is, is that not what, does it say anything about first place or second place or best hitter or best looking? I know most of you punk just said, no, it wasn't that one. It doesn't say anything about accomplishing a thing, but I got a trophy. I got a box full of these things in the garage. I'm going to go home and look and see if any of them are winners. What are we teaching our kids today? Are we teaching them to be humble? Or have we got to make everybody feel important, prideful? It's exactly what we're teaching in our world today. I find it kind of interesting. I made some notes, just some things that I think about when I think of pride in people's life. This is just coming from observations of people, some in this room. Just kidding. Some outside this room. But it's it's, it's these things. We teach people to be proud about some of these things. Proud of what they accomplish. Aren't people proud of what they accomplish? Proud of what they have. (laughs) You see that, don't you? Proud of the education that you achieved. Boy, we're always proud of that. You ever been to a doctor's office? What's always hanging on the wall somewhere in that doctor's office? It's medical certificate. Hopefully half a dozen of them. The more he can get, boy, he'll line the wall up. And they always take you down that hall. He doesn't put them in the... You got to go down the hall of fame. Boy, you're looking good. He must be good. Look at all this paper. So, so education, that's one of the things. Careers. Oh, my goodness. Careers. Women, not so bad. Men, horrible. Horrible. How do I know? When you walk up to a person, guys... You don't really know them very much. You're trying to get to know them. What are some of the questions that you always ask? What's one of the questions that's in the men's handbook of meeting other men? What do you do for a living? Is that not the question? Does it not come out every time? When you walk up to another person and say, hey, how are you doing? You live around here? What do you do for a living? As if it makes a difference. I think I'm going to start going, I'm a ditch digger. Every time I meet somebody, I'm a ditch digger. Let's see how it works out. I, I don't know. But, but you think about it, that, that's, that's a man one right there, if that's anything. Proud of the money we make. Oh, my goodness, could we not go on with examples of that for hours? Look at the TV. Is it not amazing, absolutely amazing, the money you see paraded around on TV? Is it not also amazing, the ones that you see that have all this money that now are begging people to help them pay their bills? <laughs> I, I find that actually Wonderful. I think it's kind of neat how that works out. The things we own, the family we have. Oh, okay, guys, I beat up on you with the whole career thing. Now let's move over to the women's side. This is where the pastor normally has to get his resume warmed up because he's looking for somewhere else to preach after this. Women. <laughs> what do you always say when you meet someone, when you start meeting other women? What, what do you talk about most times? The kids. Is it not the kids, isn't it? 
Every time you bump into somebody, some of you are past the kid stage. Now you're talking about what? Grandkids. Is that not it? Sit down with a woman just one time, talking to her, and just look at her and go, you don't have a picture of your grandkids, do you? You'll be there for hours. For hours. But we're proud of those kids and those grandkids. Man, we're proud of them. Our athletic ability. (laughs) Boy, we see that paraded around on TV, don't we? Look at the Super Bowl. My goodness. People were paying millions of dollars to run a 30-second ad on the Super Bowl. Why? They knew there was a bunch of us idiots that were going to be watching it. That's why. It's a big thing. I mean, you know, did anybody happen to notice Duke got beat yesterday? Woo! Go Jesus. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that out loud? That was so stay inside my head, wasn't it, honey? State also won. Not, not that anybody really cares. Nobody pulls for state. I just kidding. That was a joke. That was a joke. Oh, oh man! Wow. Uh, that got me in trouble right there. But athletic ability. Did you see the reaction? All the guys knew exactly what I was talking about. Boy, them athletes. There's some fine fellows there. But we're we're so proud of our athletes. Really, I could just say we're proud of, and let you fill in the slot. Because don't each of you have something you're proud of? That, I'm not saying you shouldn't be proud of things, but you shouldn't be prideful of those things. And see, that's the exact opposite of humility. There's absolutely, absolutely no way you can put on a suit of humility and also wear a suit of pride. Those two things can't be on the same body. And that's what Paul's telling us here. You see, because if you want to attract people to you, it doesn't want to be about you. And that's what Paul knows. How hard is it to sit and listen to a person talk about all their accomplishments and you can't get a word in edgewise? How good do you feel when you meet a person and you have a nice conversation with them, you're trying to get to know them, and you just ask them a question that suddenly turns on their pride button? And for 45 minutes, they talk about themselves and never ask you a thing about you. How do you feel when you leave that situation? You see, that's the heart of what Paul's hitting at. I find it very interesting, this whole scenario of pride. I really believe if you take the potato of sin and you skin off the outside cover of what we see sin being, maybe it being gossip or drunkenness or whatever it may be. And I think if you peel that outside skin off of that potato and you're left holding the inside of that white potato, you know what I think you're actually holding in your hand in the case of sin? Pride. Because if you really think about sin, at the root of all sin is pride. The very first sin ever committed was the sin of pride. If you've got your Bible still open, I hope you do. Flip back to Isaiah with, well, Isaiah with me. This morning we're going to be traveling through quite a few verses. That's why I know we won't even get past the introduction to being humble. But in Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah chapter 14, it, it gives us this picture of the very first sin. Now I know most of you thought we were headed to Genesis, didn't you? When I said the very first sin, there were some folks already flipping to the front of their Bible. Going, I know where Genesis is at. I got this one covered. I'm headed to Genesis. We're going to Isaiah. We're going to Isaiah for a reason. I'm going to show you. Isaiah chapter 14. Let's look at verse 12. It says this. How you are fallen from heaven, 
O Lucifer, son of the morning. Who's that? Satan. He goes on to say, How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, and here's pride, a beautiful, ugly picture of pride. He says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the further sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. What was his problem? He had an eye problem, didn't he? It wasn't that he couldn't see. It's that he thought he was something that he wasn't. He had this I will problem. Five times, I believe, if I counted it. One, two, three, four, five times. He looks at God. And he makes statements like, I'll ascend into heaven. I'm going to sit on the throne. I will sit on the mount over all the congregation. I'll ascend to the greatest of heights. I will be like God. That's pride. Here Lucifer, Satan, looks at God. and says, I'm going to be what you are. And it's kind of weird because did you, do you know how God made Lucifer to be? This is the part that's really weird. Flip over to Ezekiel. Just hang a, a right in your Bible about, I don't know, a couple of three books. Over to Ezekiel towards the end, 28. Over to Ezekiel 28. See, we had seen there as he was talking about Lucifer and Isaiah. He used the term, oh, Lucifer, son of the morning. Or most of your translations probably said star of the morning. So what did that star look like in Ezekiel? Ezekiel chapter 28, we'll just look, uh, let's look down about verse 11. It says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now this is Ezekiel. Keep in mind, Ezekiel speaks in metaphors, pictures, uh, symbolism. You're going to see this king of Tyre. When you see this king of Tyre, think Lucifer. Think Satan with me. He says this in verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherubim who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones, talking about God's presence. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now, what is the picture that you just saw? It's beautiful, isn't it? When we look at Satan today, what do we see? (laughs) Admit it. (laughs) There's got to be a pitchfork in the picture. Am I right? There's got to be a pitchfork. He's, he's got these horn things on his head, doesn't he? He's always got red somewhere. Another reference to state, but I'm going to leave that alone. 
He, <laughs> that, was, that was really bad. But he's always dressed in red. There's always somehow the smell of smoke that comes to your mind when you see the picture. He's always really ugly, isn't he? Really ugly. He's all, how did he get a tail? Does anybody know he's got his tail? He's always got a tail. And when he talks, he doesn't talk in a normal voice. It's always a or something, you know. Isn't that the picture you get when you think of Satan? Is that not it? Have you ever been to one of those things where they walk you through, uh, you know, the church and they show you the person who gets killed and the whole process and you wind up walking through and you see the picture of hell and the guy's standing there and it's hot in the room. But what is that thing they call you? There's, there's some kind of play they put on to go around and do. But anyway, so I don't remember. We'll just not worry about the name. But, but you go through and you see this whole devil. He's always this ugly guy. And you always think to yourself, who would want to follow him? You know what? We got our pictures flipped. The picture of Jesus fits what I just described. Because the Bible says he was nothing to look at. (laughs) He was not attractive. He was not nice to see with the eyes. There was nothing physically attractive about Jesus. Yet it says, Lucifer? Lucifer was perfect in beauty. Notice who wrote that. God wrote it because God said, Thus says the Lord God, in verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, Satan was beautiful. He doesn't just leave it there. He tells you how beautiful. Covered in sardis, topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald, and this. That isn't good enough. They added gold. Do you see this beautiful thing, this beautiful person so adorned that we seem called light in places, don't we? This beauty that if you looked upon, you were somehow drawn to. So we see this about Satan, Lucifer. If we connect it with what we just read in Isaiah, it said in Isaiah that he got kicked out of heaven. Why? Because all this wasn't good enough. All this wasn't good enough. It said he was full of wisdom and perfect in his beauty. He looked beautiful. He was the cherub that covered. It goes on to talk about the Walking with God in the fiery stones. It goes on to talk about these pipes and timbrels because he was the minister of music. He was the leader of the worship. This beautiful, adorned, perfect creation wasn't happy. He wasn't happy. Here he had everything Everything anybody could have wanted. Yet it wasn't enough. Why wasn't it enough? Because he wanted to be God. He didn't just want to look good. He wanted to be God. I find it very interesting that when you think about Lucifer, you never really think about why he sinned. But he really sinned because he thought 
He was all that and more. Lucifer thought, look at me. I'm beautiful. Look at me, I'm smart. Look at me, I can sing. Look at me, I could walk anywhere I want to go. Look at me, I've been to the Garden of Eden. Look at me. That's why he says, I will do these things. I will be this. I will be that. You know what it sounds like? Some of us sometimes, doesn't it? God gives us everything we've ever needed and more. Yet we sin. Why do we sin? Because we want to be God. Why do I say that? Because God has promised us to give us all that we need, hasn't he? As one of his children. He has promised to take care of us. He has promised even to give us above what we need, which is evident in all of our lives. God has promised to be our God. God has promised to save us. What has he asked of us? What has he asked? To be like Christ. When we sin, are we like Christ? No. Which must mean we want to be our own God because the one that we have is wrong. There's no other way to look at sin. See, if you choose sin over what God tells you, you're saying, God, you're not right, I am. And the minute you say that, take the cover off the potato of sin because it comes from the pride that's welled up within your heart. And see, Paul tells us that we should walk with this humility, yet stuck inside of us is this sin of pride. We know it from Genesis, since you all were headed there anyway. We know that first sin was committed by Lucifer there in heaven. He was kicked out of heaven at some point in time. We see him reappear over in the garden. When he reappears in garden this time, it tells us in chapter 3 of Genesis, that he appears as a serpent. So it tells us there in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. So here was this Lucifer, still a pretty smart fellow. Even though now he was appearing as this serpent and had been kicked out of heaven, this intelligence apparently that he had was still pretty good. Because it says here that he's more cunning than any of the other beasts of the field. Cunning there is actually a Greek word or a Hebrew word rather that's used to, to mean more deceitful side of cunning so it says then then the second part of that verse and he said to the woman as God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden notice what he's doing he doesn't come out and say God's wrong now does he that wouldn't be cunning that would be stupid see because if he came right out to Eve and he said Eve your God's wrong I'm right now she could draw a line in the sand she could say Hold on, i got a choice to make. Either it's him or it's, it's him. It's got to be God because God's right. But Satan doesn't do that. Satan says, to be sure, Eve, he didn't say you couldn't eat of every tree of the garden. And it said, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it. Nor shall you touch it, 
lest you die. I ask you a question. Is that verse, that instruction, anywhere in the Bible? No. That's not what God said. Is that what God said? Did God tell them they couldn't touch it? Did he? (laughs) Go home, read the first part of Genesis. See, she said, no, he didn't say we... She said, shall not eat it. Matter of fact, you shall not touch it. Because if we do, we're going to die. The serpent then said, I cast it out there. She just nibbled on it. Now I'm going to set the hook. He says, then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God. Why? Because you'll know good for evil. What was the thing that he was tempting Eve with? The same thing that cost him his position in heaven. Wanted to be like God. Wanted to be like God. Goes on, you know the rest of the story. Goes on, she ate, handed it to Adam. He threw a little cinnamon on it, had him a big nibble and a bite. And suddenly, they looked at each other and said, Where'd your clothes go? Eve looked at Adam and said, Where'd your clothes go? And they ran and hid themselves. Because what happened in the moment that they chose to sin? They spiritually died. For the first time ever in their life, they saw good and evil. They most certainly did. They didn't control it, as Satan said they would. But they saw it. And that sin welled up in their hearts. Why did they want to partake of that apple? To be like God. Wasn't it good enough that God walked with them in the garden every day? Wasn't it good enough that God gave them this utopia? Wasn't it good enough that God provided everything for them? No. The more they got, the more they wanted Sound familiar? Like they asked the rich man one time. I forgot which one of the ones it was. It was one of the rich fellows, like a Trump or somebody. They said, "Who? Uh, Carnegie? Was it Carnegie?" They asked Carnegie, "When? When is enough enough?" <laughs> he basically said, "Never. There's no end." See when. When your pride is in your things, yourself, your accomplishments, when your pride is in you, there is no end of what you'll do to keep that stature in your mind. And the real end of what you'll do is eat the apple. The real end of what you'll do is say, God, I'm going to be my God. You may sit in a church pew every Sunday. You may come to the altar and pray. You may sing in the choir. You may stand in a pulpit and preach. But if God isn't the only thing you're proud about, if you're proud of your accomplishments, and you choose your things over God's things, you're in sin. And that heart of that sin is pride. And we see the picture of that there in Genesis. We see the picture of that there in Genesis. See, Satan still uses that exact same tendency to be prideful in our own lives. And we went here this morning. See, we get so convinced that we are good enough 
that we're going to be okay. We're so convinced that we are good enough that we don't need to lean on God's goodness. See, we think we have the ability to know what's best for us, so we ignore what God tells us. We get so proud of what we have accomplished that we forget even the ability to accomplish anything is a gift from a gracious God. Not only is the thing a gift, not only is that trophy a gift, the ability to be on the team is a gift. So you may earn things and create things. You may have a job where you're at the top of the list. You got there because God gave you that ability. You see, we like to beat our chest <laughs> to impress our friends. Yet the talent to do all the things that we do is not even ours. So I ask you this morning as we close a third of the introduction to the first point. Where are you with pride in your life? You know, I find it interesting, and I'm going to tell this on myself. This isn't a Catholic confession. I don't need you to come up and give me a number of beads to pray afterwards, but I will make a confession to you. You know the hardest thing for a pastor to overcome in a church? is pride. It's not your pride. It's my pride. You ever thought about it? Do you know how many people on a Sunday morning come out that back door and tell me what a good job I just did for the last hour, whatever it may be? You know how many people bump into me and say, Pastor Boy, you were right on the money this morning. Do you know how many people come by and say good things about what I do? Believe it or not, there are a few. There are a few. No, you, a lot of you do. And I'll never forget, it just came to my mind as I was thinking about that. I'll never forget what a coach told us one time in football. We were doing really well, the team was. And he cautioned us. After about the second or third win, he said, don't read the school newspaper because you're on the front page. You're the headline. He says, don't read the headline. You know why he told us not to read the headline? Because that was yesterday's news. What would happen if we read the headline? We might start to believe it. We might start to believe we're that good. He said, don't read the headline. That's yesterday's news. He said, focus on what you're supposed to be doing. Focus on your walk. That's what Paul's telling us. Be careful. Be careful of that beautiful Stone-covered Lucifer is crouching by the door. It says he's crouching by the door, toothless as he may be, waiting to devour. You know who he's waiting to devour? The one that says, I will. The one that says it's all about me. I only need God when I can no longer do it. Let me give you breaking news this morning. You can't do anything without God. You need him now. You don't need him when your world falls apart. It may be too late. He doesn't promise to give you an opportunity 
before death shows up at your door to get another chance to respond to the gospel. He says he will come by. He will share the gospel with you. If you harden your heart and turn away, he makes no promise to ever visit you again. We see it in the word. We see it in the word where he says his heart is hardened, leave him. Don't think that you're going to pull the trigger when you're ready. God may be strolling past you this morning for the very last time. Don't let your pride stand between you and eternity with God. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.